So I just, um, it's kind of weird sometimes coming and being a part of Neartown just because I've kind of been a part of it from the beginning in terms of Russell and I met before Neartown launched, and then we talked about it, we dreamed about it, we prayed about what this church would look like, and then I've been here just a few Sundays coming in and teaching every now and then and hanging out with Russell. Um, So it's just been kind of a part of what I feel like my story, a small part in seeing what God's doing. So it's just encouraging to see this and encouraging to be a part of it. Like I said, my name is Caleb Sutherland. I work for an organization called Contagious Disciple Making. We do indigenous church planning. It's weird. And so we'll just move on. Um, but one of the things that I love is y'all are doing this series called A Better Life. And two weeks ago, my life got a lot better in that I got married um, and I want to show these really cool pictures. And th- there's a reason behind this, okay? So don't just think I'm broadcasting stuff. But we have these really cool pictures. We went to San Francisco. We ran off. Um, kind of, we, we took a photographer and her husband, who was a pastor, and ran off and just didn't even have a place or a location or a time. So our, our wedding wasn't late. That was cool. Um, I mean, it just, we took off. A friend of ours said, you need to go to Baker Beach. So I lived in California and San Francisco for a while. So I said, where should we go? They said, go to Baker Beach. It's the most beautiful part. You can see the whole, you know, Golden Gate Bridge in the background. You'll get beautiful pictures. And so we went down there. We parked the car. We have, you know, five of us in an Echo because um, it's the cheap. So we, we, and she has the dress. And we're heading down these steps, which we couldn't see the end of. But we went to the bottom of these steps and we kind of get positioned. Again, there's no reason or lo- pers- purpose for the location other than pictures. So we line up and I have a, a beautiful view of the bay. So I'm looking at the ocean and looking at my fiance wife. I don't know what they are at that point, but fiance wife thing. And we have all this going on, and she says, do you, do you know where we're at? No. What? And, and so she goes, look around. So we start looking around and realize that Baker Beach is also a clothing-optional beach, <laughs> mostly for men over 70. And so I'm looking at the ocean while she's other things. And so we're, we're there, and, and I hear this. Russell's going, hey, I want you to preach on 1 John 2. And so I'm reading, and he's talking about living in the light and being the light. And I'm like, something shouldn't be. And so just there, there's actually places that light's not good. And that was one of them. And so I kind of go through this story of things. It, it's fascinating to see this and to know actually when the pictures are like they are, but you also know what's around us. And it, it's interesting because everybody on Facebook like, what a wonderful wedding. We're like, it was, but, you know. And so um, it, it's fascinating when you see this kind of life, but really what's going on behind it and what's going on behind the scenes. One of the things that you don't know, the, the picture that's in color, there was actually four fishermen with their big fishing poles out there catching sharks or something. I don't, but we're out there and those were all photoshopped out. It's amazing what you can do when you just want to deceive people. It's amazing how you can switch things and change things and kind of manipulate things in order for life to seem better than it actually is. And it's, it's fascinating to see kind of 
how we do that in the Christian life and in our Christian world. And so what does this look like to live in the light? 1 John 2 kind of unpacks this a little bit more. 1 John 2 kind of unpacks this a little bit more. And we're going to kind of look at what it looks like when uh, walking in the light is hard. Let's read it again. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Like I said, not um, too long in 2013, I lived in San Francisco, and I was sitting on this kind of pier beach area, and I was reading through just some books, and a guy comes up next to me, and we start having this conversation. He begins to strike up a little bit about spirituality and what he's involved in and all this stuff, and, and so it quickly moved over to where um, I'm a Christian, and this is what I believe, and he went, you know, I actually tried the Christian world for about two years, and that thing is complicated. He's like, there are so much stuff that y'all have. I mean, and weird gray area. I just, it's weird. I, I couldn't do it. And, and so this isn't prompt. I didn't prescript this at all. I just said, you know, for me, I really take two things serious. And that's kind of it in my Christian walk. I take sin serious and I take grace serious. And he went like this, <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with that. And I was like, me neither. That's the journey. That, that's the journey, is when I take sin really serious and I take grace really serious. And you can tell pretty soon those are going to almost pit against each other and we have to have something for it. And so I think today's text kind of looks at the tension in the life between taking sin serious and taking grace serious. So in these first two verses, my little children. Uh, He's about to walk into something that's kind of, he really doesn't sugarcoat anything. One of the things I like about John in this passage is in, in, in the Bible is that it's not complicated. It's really simple in how he kind of walks it out. My little children. There's this affectionate term because he knows he's about to drop something that's really hard. And so he's kind of pulling you in and going, hey, this is a term of endearment for you to realize that I'm with you on this journey. I love you. I care for you. This isn't just a, just a hard statement. Get over it. It's let's walk in this journey together. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, so that you may not sin. Just flat out, he just spells it out. I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to have anything like that in you. And there's several reasons why this is so vitally important. I think the main reason is because why do we take sin serious is because sin, actually when we sin, we look at the cross and say, I don't care. 
I mean, in the, simplest, in the simplest form, we look at the cross, we look at the gospel, we look at Jesus and say, I just, I don't care. And it just destroys, it just demeans all of the work of the gospel. When we sin, it does that. And so he's, he states this, I'm writing this so that you may not sin because he wants to take sin incredibly Serious. The second thing is that, and this is all in the first chapter, which Russell tackled last week, is that it breaks fellowship. I don't know about y'all, but when somebody has done something against me, I don't enjoy talking to them. Like it's not the, it, it, there's not a really close relationship with those people who have done something against me. It breaks relationship. It breaks fellowship. And then the third thing is it actually destroys our joy. It destroys um, just our inner happiness and peace and joy. And just when we thrive, when sin begins to get, it begins to destroy that. And so when he says this, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's saying it going, I take sin incredibly serious. I absolutely lifted up to realize that it is a massive issue and that it was such a big issue that we actually had to send God out of heaven into this earth to live and dwell and die for it. He's like, are you with me in understanding why we take sin serious? And too often we move past it. We do three things with sin. We minimize it. We kinda, we'll kind of minimize it. We kind of reword it. We recategorize it. If you're in any kind of finance, you know what that's like. Oh, that's not going to look good on the books. Let's put it in here. Like that was uh, product development. There we go. That's instead of just we went off and had a party. Um, so we were boosting morale, and we kind of just recategorize it. And usually what we do with sin, we minimize it by just recategorizing it under uh, oops or uh, just didn't know or, well, I was trying, or any of those things, we recategorize it when we minimize it. The second thing we do is we just excuse it. Well, I mean, he did this to me first. He was the one who cut me off. I had no other option than to take out his fender. I I mean, it just, it was there. I had to. I mean, he was the one who undercut me on the sale. I, I had to go and get him fired. I, whatever it is, your wife, she said this to me. I had no other option than to just bring up old past relationships. That, that was the next thing. That was the only option I had. We excuse it. And then the third thing is we just ignore it. Just, just let it go. Stack like it didn't happen. Just completely ignore it. We do this time and time and time again. And when we do this, we do not take sin serious. If we don't take sin serious, the gospel and the rest of this passage is not going to make any sense. If we don't sit heavily in this part right here, then we will not see it in its beauty. Now, it's interesting because I want to kind of pit two things against each other. Two, one, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In verse 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I'm writing this so that you don't sin. If you say you don't have sin, you're deceiving. So which one is it? 
Can I not sin or do I have sin in me? How does this work itself out? How do I live in this tension? And that, to me, brings up this whole concept of the three phases of salvation, which I think I've shared before, but we'll keep on pressing through it because we just glance just forward too much and we look past it too much rather than dwell in this. The three phases of salvation. So it's not you come forward, you get saved, everything's great, a happy life, go on, just live in this world, everything's better. I think we know that. I think most of us at some point maybe even been sold a gospel that was like, if you come forward, Jesus is going to save you. He's going to save you from sin, death, hell. And you're going, sweet. You come down, then the next, like, you walk outside and somebody already says something. You're like, I thought I got saved. Like, and it's how does this work itself out? Three phases of salvation. The first one, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You don't have to dwell in that. You don't have to fear that. You don't have to worry about the penalty. You are saved from the penalty. That is past tense, already happened. It is finished on the cross. And then you are being saved from the power of sin. This is the second phase, that you're being saved from that, that sin inside of you that seems to war on your mind and seems to win. I think if you were to look back at when you were first saved and now you would start seeing that you're starting to think of more godly gospel things. Your conscience begins to draw clearer and your conscience begins to look more like Jesus. I hope that's encouraging for some of you. That you can look back over your life and start going, man, I have had better thoughts. God is drawing me in those ways to him. And then the third phase is that we will be, this is future tense, saved from the presence of sin. So when you move back into your world and you go into your office and yes, you've believed and yes, you've been saved and Jesus has redeemed you and he's completely pulled you into his arms and you have nothing to fear about eternity, Realize he also launched you into this, let's continue to progress and develop and save you from the power of sin. And then don't worry, there will be a day that I redeem you from the presence of sin. Why is this so important? For one, I want you to see that we're living in that second part. So pursuing Christ, what we're going to talk about in verses 3 through 6 actually launches you into where you are being saved from the power of sin and you're moving forward in this, but also gives you the hope that one day we'll be redeemed out of the mess of all this junk. So I got married, moved to Houston two weeks ago on Memorial Day. And I called people, I'm like, so this is what living in Houston's like. It rains all the time. And then at the end of that, I drove back to Dallas and that's where I'm and it rains all, and I was just like, this is what this world, and we are seeing death, and just, just a massive amount of destruction, you're going, God, just fix it, just fix this, and our hope, and our plea is that that third phase of salvation happens, let's keep going, so we have this rising tension between, it is possible that you may not sin with Whoever has sin in him and says he doesn't is a liar. Let's keep going. Second part. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
See this beautiful thing is that he says, I'm writing this so that you take sin serious. I'm writing this so that you see this. I'm writing this because I want you to have joy and I want you to have fellowship and I want you to take the gospel and the cross serious. I want all these things for you. But I know that you might stumble and instead of you just spinning into despair, I want you to see the beauty of what we have. I want you to see the beauty of what we have. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. What he begins to map out here is a courtroom scene. We have this courtroom scene where you're on trial. You're sitting there and, and you have ever I mean, you know you're guilty. There's no going, getting out of this. Clearly, you're very, I mean, you're looking at it going, there's not a shot. I felt this not too long ago. Red light cameras, worst invention in the world. So I, I, I get this ticket in the mail, and I'm like, immediately, what do I think? No! Like, I didn't, there is no way, I didn't do that. And they're like, do you think you didn't do this? It almost like spells it out. You think you didn't do this? Go to this website. And I'm like, well, yeah, and you click it, and then there's a video of you doing it with a picture of you, like, like exactly what you were eating in the car and like everything. And I was like, I, th- I think I'm guilty. I mean, it's cl- it seems like they have some evidence. Like it just, that's my car. And what's even interesting is I go get in my car and even I'm trying to think, I wonder if that was really my car. I mean, I know it was me and my license plate in my car, but there's a chance. Um, where was I? And so I'm looking up if I was even in the area, and I'm like, no, that, that, was, it, that was driving in, into my house. Um, and so, like, it, it's amazing, even though all of that is from me, I still try to convince myself that I wasn't guilty. I still try to do that. And it's amazing. So you're sitting there in the courtroom, and you know you're guilty. You have all the evidence. Everything's in front of you. You're sitting there, and Jesus walks in as an advocate for you. Looking at the Father and says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I became sin so that he didn't have to be. It is the propitiation for our sins, and not only your sins, but the sins of the whole world. So he's looking at you going, I took it. I took it. So here's what I want you to realize. Jesus didn't go, okay, I see your sin, we're just going to wipe it clean. He said, something has to pay the penalty. Something has to. We can't just let it get off. Could you imagine the turmoil in a world where you just allowed pardons all the time and there was nobody that actually paid the penalty for it? That's not a fair, just world. That's not a world I want to live in. Even now, they they have all of the courtrooms that are all over TV. Any large case, whatever, comes on the screen, and everybody's watching to see what that is. And it's interesting, because whenever they will say, not guilty on somebody, and then just pardon them, I'm immediately going, then who is? There's a dead baby, or there's a dead wife, or there's a dead family. So who is? And it just seems, and my soul won't rest, because somebody has to be guilty. And nobody's paying the penalty for it. And so Jesus looks and goes, you're not paying the penalty. I am the propitiation for sins. I'm taking the penalty. I'm taking the wrath. I'm taking everything. So here's why this is so important is those two things 
now help three through six. Those two concepts of sin is really serious, and then grace is really serious, now maps out what happens in three through six. Because what happens in three through six is we're going to see that you never outgrow the gospel. You never move past the gospel. The gospel isn't something that saves you, and then you just launch into Christian life. The gospel is something that saves you, and sustains you, and maintains you, and fights for you, and is your advocate, and constantly pushes you through. Let's keep going in three through six. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So here's one of the things that it begins to level out. Is the assurance of knowing where you stand with Jesus. So I'll tell you this, I think I come on Sunday mornings a lot of times, I'll just tell you kind of my world. I'll go to a church on Sunday morning, I'll even speak, and I feel really solid about my Christian life. I mean solid. Like you can't, anybody could come up and go, I don't think you're a Christian, and I would have every, you know. But on Thursday, after I've had a really bad week, and after my, just some of the worst sins, I don't even want to say them, And then I'm sitting in my room thinking, what kind of Christian would do that? What kind of believer would do something like that? I mean, that's that's vain and vile and gross. And I can't even see an unbeliever doing some of the stuff I did. How in the world would a believer ever do what I just did? And then I get spun into this world of maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe... Maybe, I don't know where I stand. I don't, and kind of the uncertainty, which is just frustration. So going back to my wedding, one of the things, so we chose to go to California, and we took a pastor from Texas, and about a week out, he sends me an email. He's like, hey, just wanted to make sure, did you, are you sure that I can officiate a wedding in California? I was like, um, Google. And so... Jumped on there, kind of looked up some stuff, still not real sure. Um, and so we got married and kind of some week, you know, the week passed. And I was sitting there going, I wonder if we're really married. <laughs> huh. Like, I wonder if some of the stuff we're doing. And it, then it starts like, I'm like, I got to find out. I got I to gotta call the state of Texas. Who do you call? Who do you, you know what? I think I messed up. How do we redo this? Who can sign it? How do we get somebody to sign? I mean, you wouldn't believe. Do we have to do another ceremony? That cost me a lot. Like, I, I mean, everything started going back and forth in my head. And you can imagine just the turmoil of am I officially married when that begins to rock your eternal security? Am I a believer? Where do I stand in all this? The team that I work with, they always, they hate me because every time I'll go, well, clarify that. Like, that's my famous, they, I think that's my nickname. Clarify that is what they call me because no matter what they say, it can be the clearest thing. I want Taco Bell for lunch. I'm like, mm, give me some clarity because that doesn't make any sense. Like, like, come on, let's walk through this. There's something about being extremely clear 
on where you stand. And this begins to unpack it. By, verse 3, and by this we know. And by, I want to just plead on your heart right now to look at this passage and see where you stand with Jesus. By this we know. By this we know. We have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We have come to know him. You know where you stand. You know the gospel if you keep his commandments. Now, this seems really quickly like legalism. I mean, I kind of feel that. And so when we look at John 14, 15, and put these two together, John 14 and 15 says that if you love me, you will obey me. He says it time and time and time and time and time again. All of 14 and 15, if you love me, you will obey me. One of the things that's fascinating, we talk about this in our circles, is that God's love language to us is grace and mercy. He shows us he loves us by grace and mercy, giving us something that we don't deserve and keeping us from things that we do deserve. That's how he reaches out and says, I absolutely love you. And we respond, we couldn't give grace and mercy to God. So God spells out a way for us to show him that we love him, and it is obedience. Our love language to God is to obey him. Now, before we get too crazy on this, let's kind of think about your kids. How can your kids show you that they love you? Not by giving you grace. Not by giving you mercy. They show they love you by obedience. I actually trust you. I trust what you say is good. I trust that you actually care about my life and my heart and my affections. So therefore, I will obey you. And so by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Like how he sugarcoated that a little bit, like kind of, you know, made it really easy to hear. Um, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So who is this for? Let's just unpack who is this for real quick. It is for those who've convinced themselves that they are believers based on their pedigree, their upbringing, their church attendance how many podcasts you've downloaded, how many Christian CDs you have, how many times you've been to Mardell's, like any of those type of things, any of those type of things, this is what this passage is for. Who is it not for? Those trying and fighting and pursuing and are in the fight inside of your sin for life. So I just, I want to, anybody that kind of, you know, you think back, if I was to ask you, tell me about your salvation. Anytime I talk to people, I don't want to know about the day. I'm like, hey, tell me, tell me your salvation story. June 6th, 1993, remember it as yesterday. Okay, tell me after that. Um, 
church, 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 church. Like, I mean, I just, it's, I want to hear the story of your redeeming and your continued reconciliation more than your date. And maybe that's a personal bias because I actually don't even know the date that I was saved. Somebody asked me the other day, when were you saved? I'm like, I don't know. Somewhere in junior high school, college, and grad school, somewhere, somewhere in that small spectrum of 20 years, um, was when God saved me. And how I know that I'm saved is the obedience to what God wants, not a defined date. Let's keep going. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. Here are some ways we do this. So this is for the four. This is for the religious people. This is for the people that your pedigree and all this kind of stuff, that's kind of what's moving you. Here are ways that we say that we know him, but we don't keep his commandments. Okay, because immediately we start thinking about everybody on TV that says, oh, you know, I give God all the credit and then have 17 wives. Oh, I give God all the credit, and then they're beating their wife. Like, immediately we went there, but we don't think about this. Here's some ways in our everyday culture that this is us. The first one, we leave worship gatherings going, man, that was really good, with no response in your life. Man, today was good. Man, that music. Or, man, I can't wait for Russell to be back. It'll be better. Or, like, what, just whatever, you know works for that day, um, is whatever that kind of is, as you leave, if you don't leave going, I have to obey it. I have to change. I have to do something in response to this. Instead of, today was good. With no response built in. The second thing, we fill our lives with Bible studies, but no accountability. I think oftentimes, I know in a lot of the circles that I was in, I had people that were in like 14 Bible studies throughout the week, like constantly scheduling them. Just, and I'm going, how do you obey 14 different passages every week? I just, I just do it. You know, it's like, no, you don't. You, you just have filled your life so much with Bible study after Bible study and Christian book after Christian book with no avenue to respond. I'm not anti-Bible study. Don't hear that whatsoever. I'm anti-filling your life so much that you have no room for accountability and obedience. The third thing, we carb load on sermon podcasts and books and no time to work it out. We just, can't, I have a friend that on his, he has a 45-minute drive to work. And so a 45-minute drive to work, he listens to one sermon. Lunch, he listens to a sermon. On the way home, he listens to a sermon. Fifteen sermons in a week. I'm like, have you turned it off and just prayed? Uh, why? Yeah, I mean, it's like, what would I do then? I have to hear him. Like, pretty soon you're going to catch up because he only preaches one week. I mean, like, like you know, you're going to have to figure this out. And we just load up on all kinds of information in order to get past obedience. And the fourth one, when our worship is one-dimensional and it's void of our money, our time, and our talents, when worship is one-dimensional, it's more in the 
man, I'm just going to give Sunday morning that hour and a half. I'm going to like really feel the energy in the room. I'm going to like really hear the music, but it's void of our money and our time and our talents. You know that you're, you're somehow missing something in Scripture that if you love me, you will obey me. He begins to pull on those things. Let's keep going in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. How beautiful is that? But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Obedience kind of has three motives, and I want you to realize that this is a journey that you get to process through. So you can just ask yourself this. The three motives are we have to, we need to, and we want to. We have to obey him, we need to obey him, and we want to obey him. There's these, these three motives that are beginning to churn on your soul and your heart and your mind and, and everything as you move it. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So I just want you to know that at times you're going to do it because you have to. I don't wake up every morning going, today I get to read God's word. This is going to be awesome. There's a lot of morning I wake up going, oh, like... I don't want to. I have no desire to. I have no desire to pray. I have no desire to hear. Like, I get in the car and there's a Christian song and I'm like, oh, like immediately just find something else. Just be, I, I just don't want to. It doesn't devoid me of my affections for Christ. There's times your obedience is a have to. It's like I have to do it based on what he did on the cross. I have to. I don't want to right now. Then there's other times when it's a need to. There's a, you need to do it. So the have to is like, if you're a prisoner, you have to obey. You have no other options. There's other times when it's the need to. Like a job, you may not want to work, but you need to to support your family. You need to to support your family. And then the third one is the want to. This is that where you really begin. I want you to realize that this is a process. It's a spectrum that you're going to be on this journey. And I just want you to evaluate your life going, where am I today? And just be real. Be in the light with it. Man, today I don't want to spend any time with God. You have four or five of those days in a row, begin to ask questions, begin bringing people around you, begin seeking out what that is. If you think every day you have this deep desire and, oh, I just, I get to, I want to, you probably want to see what things are you missing in Scripture because God's actually going to pry on some stuff that may hurt. And so there's this process, this progression of maturity, this progression of obedience, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That love of God is perfected in all three of those. Your have to, your need to, your want to. I just want you to realize that that's a cyclical journey that I'm on, that you're on, that we're all on. Don't get discouraged by that. The last thing we'll close with this. By this, we may know that we are in him. 
So I want your soul to again look at this verse. By this we know that we are in him. Let's bring this to light. Let's bring your soul to light. Let's bring everything in. And look at this and say, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if you're going to state that you're a believer, now you have to start walking in the way Jesus walked. And let me just simplify that because it can get really complicated. Do you take sin serious and do you take grace serious? In the simplest terms, that's all I can throw out there at you. To walk in the way God walked. To walk in the way Jesus walked. When you look at every story throughout the Gospels, you see that Jesus takes sin incredibly serious and he takes grace incredibly serious. And it's this beautiful picture. And I even dream and imagine of a church that takes sin serious and grace serious. And then you go into your city and you actually take sin serious and grace serious. And the journey is going to be how these two tensions play into each other. Went to a counselor one time and was talking about trying to find balance for life. And the counselor just laughed at me, which is always encouraging, and just says, there is no balance in life. There's only tension. He goes, and it's like a rubber band. A rubber band that's just laying there with no tension on it is useless. It doesn't do anything for you. But a rubber band that's stretched too tight pops, and it's useless. A healthy rubber band is one that's in tension. So we're going to walk this walk where we take sin serious and grace incredibly serious. It's where you repent, but yet you realize the propitiation for your sin has already been taken care for. But then you realize the depth of what that meant. And so you pursue him more. You go into your city and you're hurt by the sins of the city, but then you remember grace and you begin to transform and change and push into your city. Your wife, you're not going to just overlook the sin that's in your marriage or in with your kids or with your relationship, but then you're going to remember grace that we can walk this out. Remember that grace that it's been paid for, it's been taken care of. So how do we respond today? How do we respond to this? I'm going to plead with you to take sin serious. And I mean that in terms of that may be an evaluation for you, for you to look at your life. For you to actually go, what sins? And, and maybe you need to bring community around you, three or four guys, three or four girls around you to start talking about and pleading into your life and looking into your life. But then the second thing is that we take grace extremely serious. That we don't just elevate sin so much that God didn't do anything for it, or we don't elevate just this grace so much that it doesn't matter how we live. We see this beautiful tension. That makes it a little bit easier to walk in the light. It makes it a little bit easier to confess your sins. All of John 1 becomes extremely easy on your soul when you have a community of grace. And you have a community of taking sin serious. 
I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond. We're going to take communion and um, worship and give and just respond in all kinds of ways. And my hope is that our worship in the next 10 minutes, whatever we walk out of here with, is one that's filled with taking sin right now in this place incredibly serious, but also taking grace incredibly serious.